0: This morning we're going to hear from Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. If you would have a seat, but don't lose that place in scripture this morning. We're going to be doing a little bit of work there in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It was many years ago that James Madison, uh, our fourth uh, president, uh, but he's probably actually uh, not as well known for being a president as he was being uh, the father of the Constitution. That's probably what you learned or maybe even recall or have associated with him. Uh, But he was really formed in this time right before the American Revolution uh, where he was very concerned about religious liberty. You see, he lived in a city where anybody who was not a part of the Anglican church was being persecuted. And if you spoke out against a a piece of doctrine of the Anglican church, you were liable to actually be found in prison. And we know a lot about his feelings from that time prior to the revolution uh, by letters that he would write. In fact, one specifically to William Bradford. But then thereafter the uh, revolution, uh, the, the war for freedom that we had in this country. He actually was uh, a huge part of not just writing the Constitution, but actually getting ratified by the different states. And that uh, thread of uh, religious freedom, that desire for religious freedom, really carried through. In 1785, he said this about religious freedom. It is the duty of every man to render to the Creator such homage and such only that he believes to be acceptable to God. This duty is present in the degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. Now, for those of us who are not like really brushed up on our 18th, uh, you know, 100 speech, it can be easy to kind of get lost in the details of what he's saying. But what he's really saying is, is that religious liberty is something a little different than the other liberties that we might get in the Bill of Rights. Uh, the very first one is, you know, freedom from established religion. But what he says is, is that religious liberty is not a liberal liberty. It's not a freedom to do what you want. So whereas a lot of the other freedoms, the freedom of speech might be to the ability to be unhindered, to be able to say whatever it is that is on your mind, even if that uh, speech is something that offends other people. But it's a, it's a liberal liberty. It's something where you can do what you want with it. Religious liberty is very different. He says that it's not a liberty to do what you want. It's a freedom to do what you must that idea of like not just being able to do what you want but do what you must is something that I think is actually going to help us kind of have some understanding of where we go in the scriptures today. You see, it describes the duty, his, uh, his uh, saying right there describes the duty of society to actually retreat out of those areas of religion and give its members space to act on what they deem essential to their faith. It's a freedom not to be coerced into doing that which your religion prohibits you from doing. Society should, therefore, he would say, make room for moral codes that come with restraints. A society that refuses to allow its citizens to be constrained by their religious convictions is unacceptably coercive, he would say. It's the very liberalism that can actually be oppressive. Do you, do you kind of get what I'm saying there or what he was saying there? If you just have the freedom to do whatever you want, the truth is, is that there might be places at which your religion asking you to do certain things might run afoul of what other, society, other members of society might say, no, no, you must do things this way. And what he would advocate for is spaces within a society for you to do what God requires of you but that even that is a freedom that we should have. Now, we're, we're not at City Church all that concerned with the founding of this country or the furtherance of uh, forefathers and their ideas on federalism. That's not what we are about, but I did think that that specific thing is going to help us at its core understand what this passage in Galatians is about. At its core, Madison's idea that freedom is not always an absence of constraint or just an absence of things that are tethering you or holding you down might actually help us understand the primary point of today's message, which is this. Christ has set us free for the sake of living freely. Christ has set us free for the sake of us being able to live freely. Okay, so that's what we're going to discuss, but we've got kind of three mile markers that we need to pass on our way there. The first is the desire for freedom. We've got to understand something about the desire for freedom. The second thing that we've got to do is understand something about the economics of freedom. You might be like, man... This is a lot of uh, weird things that we're studying here today. Uh, I'm going to show you how the economy actually comes out of the text, but the third and final thing is we're going to understand the truest kind of freedom. The truest kind of freedom. For some context, for those of you who are uh, new with us at City Church, haven't been around, we've been kind of painstakingly going through uh, verse by verse Galatians, and what we've discovered there, uh, maybe even ad nauseum to this point, is Paul making this reoccurring point that you cannot be saved by the law. That those people that want to uh, make a way for them to be saved cannot rely on works of the law. You can't obey enough for God to accept you, but what you have to do is take hold of grace. That's been Paul's primary point up until this point. We even see that reflected here in verse 4, if you would look with me. It says, You are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law. Now he's he's thoroughly covered this in the previous four chapters, but now Paul is actually going to make a bit of a shift not from the theology as much but into the ethics of our Christian life and freedom. He's going to be talking a lot about the work of the spirit in our lives. So we're actually going to get a little bit more practical towards the end of this book. In chapter 5, in chapter 6, we're going to see a lot of the outworkings of what Christ has done for us. And his first stop on that train is to discuss freedom. So first, the desire for freedom. What is the desire for freedom? How do we understand God's desire for freedom? How do we uh, understand our desire for freedom? Verse 1, it says this, for freedom— You you could even, if you're a note taker, if you don't mind making little notes in your Bible, you can just circle that, for freedom. Because otherwise, this kind of repetition of the word freedom, you could kind of get lost. What is the desire? The desire is for freedom. For freedom. The purpose of what Christ has done is for freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, if we're being honest, that kind of stands against some of the things that are in our culture. What the culture would tell us about God. Now, there are lots of different fragments and parts of our culture. I'm not painting with a truly broad brush. But even us in this room, I think, would probably uh, at times struggle to think that what God really wants most for you is freedom. A lot of us don't necessarily think about God in those terms. But what I think that we need to understand from this phrase is to understand that God wants you to be free. What are we to understand about the desire for freedom? We should understand that God desires it first, and God desires it most, and God sent his son to actually set us free. The first one to have desire is God himself. So if we were to ask the question, does God want you to be free? Are humans naturally free? Do we long for freedom? The very first thing that we've got to understand and that we see here is that Christ desires freedom for you, and that he has already set you free. Look at that verse. It says, for freedom, he has already set you free. It's something that's already accomplished. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you are already free. Why? Because God desired for you to live freely. He who has ears, let him hear. God desires for you to be free and has made a way for your freedom what better news is there than that? For those of us who maybe live amidst a lot of uh, just legalistic tendencies in our own hearts, for those of us who have taken on board from maybe uh, more extreme versions of our own religion, maybe you grew up in a tradition that emphasized more legalism, hear this, God wants you and has already set you free. But maybe you assumed already that man is born free. Maybe, maybe it's part of your worldview even that God, uh, God already kind of set us free from birth, that when you were just born, when you were uh, ushered into this world, you already had freedom. You already had the natural right of freedom. Now, there's, a, uh, there's a philosopher named Rousseau uh, that actually puts this really, uh, puts this very concisely. He says that man is born free but lives everywhere in chains. So his worldview, which I wholeheartedly disagree with, is that human beings are born, every one of them, all many billions of them, all throughout the world are born free, but this life, all of the entanglements, whether it's family or governments or expectations or taboos, all of those things seek to actually enslave us. And in some cases, Rousseau would actually point out that there is literal enslavement. Okay, now there's portions of that that I would say, maybe there's little bits of truth, but as a worldview, I think it falls flat, and it falls flat for a very specific reason, and that is this. The Bible teaches that yes, man is gloriously endowed with the image of God. Gloriously endowed. Can't be taken away, but we are also fatally flawed by sin. We're prone to sin. We're prone to excess. We're prone to go and seek out those things which actually bind us, Human beings actually have the desire somewhere deep down inside of our hearts to go out and seek things that will actually fetter us, will actually imprison us, will put chains on our heart that may be figurative, but they're no less real than physical chains. Man is not born free, therefore, because he is born under the righteous standard of the law which imprisons That's what Galatians has been saying over and over and over again. We must understand the state of man not being born free. So so here's the last question that I want to answer in this desire for freedom. Okay, God desired for us to be free, so he did everything in Christ Jesus to actually set us free. What great news, but maybe we were already free. No, 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 that's not true, but maybe men desire freedom. Maybe human beings desire freedom. I I kind of came of age, like many of you, kind of watching uh, from 9-11 onward. So a lot of us are just byproducts of a uh, kind of a a world that is post-9-11. And and I remember, I don't know if you do, that uh, actually the Bush doctrine, the way that we kind of interacted with the world, the way that we justified the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, regardless of where you came down on that, you would have heard much from the Bush administration, that what people really want, all around the world, is freedom. What what we're doing by going into these other countries, setting up bases, and these kinds of things, is we're just ushering in freedom for people that really desire it. What I would tell you is, is that, as a reasonably well-traveled person, as a person that grew up overseas, that's not true. There are plenty of societies that would define freedom, not in the context of an individual, but in the expression of a community that doesn't live very freely. We can see this on the news. We can see uh, women that are literally shrouded in burkas, the image of God being covered over and an entire group of people, not just thinking that that is like an acceptable thing, but a good thing. And what I'm here to tell you, if I can so boldly, is just say, I think that that's terrible. I think women, the image of God and women being obfuscated, being covered over is terrible, and yet there's an entire culture. Not not monolithically, there are plenty of uh, uh, wonderful Muslims that do not live in that way, but that is an element of non-freedom right in front of us that people will accept. I grew up in Asia where... There is an emphasis, for sure, not on individual freedoms and liberty, but there's actually like an upholding of a communal aspect, maybe even most extremely represented in the Communist Party in China. And there's an entire, there are literally hundreds of millions of people that live in that society which would actually prize non-liberal liberty. They're not looking at freedom the same way that you would. So this idea that all all people everywhere really want freedom, I don't think is true. And for those of you who are going, man, Chris, this is like getting borderline racist. You're talking about people on the other side of the world in like non-glowing terms. Here's what I want to tell you. I don't think you desire freedom either. Many of us, I mean, just joyfully accept chains of slavery. Whether it is the expectations that we have from other people wanting uh, other people to approve of us and just like willingly submitting to, uh, to just a fear of man and living in slavery. Whether it's the little tiny brick electronic thing in your pocket that like enslaves you, that you literally just can't live without, that you like hyperventilate if you thought that you may have left it at home and it'd take you 10 minutes to get back to it. I'm telling you, human beings... Do not altogether desire freedom. Who desires freedom for us? Nobody desires freedom more than God desires freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Humans everywhere seek out things that will bind them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But God desires freedom for you. He's done everything to provide it for you. Second, there is an economy of freedom. Now, now here's, here's something that's really fun. I need you to get back into Galatians chapter 5 because uh, translators, of, especially if you're in the ESV like we are, have actually not done us too many favors this morning. Uh, normally, the translators are like on point, love the translators, but here this morning there's actually a theme that doesn't come right out of the text. I'm going to prove it to you this morning. The translators have left us with a deficiency, and there are three words that I would like for us to interpret. Go to verse 2 where it says this, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, Now, that word for advantage, if you look at it in the Greek, it's literally profit. It's profit. It's the idea like, yes, that kind of profit. You go and you make money. This is a economic kind of word. Literally, this passage would say something different if you put the word profit in there. It would say that Christ will profit you not. Verse 3, it says that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you literally translate it, this is a word that is an economic word. It means debt. What this is saying is, is that there is an indebtedness. If you take the sign of circumcision, if you trust in anything but grace, that you are going to be indebted to the law. Verse 6 says this, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. If you were to look at it literally, it means to add, to sum up, to gather. Clearly, Paul is wanting us to have a ledger in our minds for us to understand this passage. And so what I want to do is actually go back and read this with those words kind of in place. Can I do that with you this morning? Read along with me. Look, I, Paul... Now, why did he say, look, colon, I, Paul? It's because he's already told us in Galatians, he's the Jew of all Jews. He was circumcised. He, he tells us all about it. He tells us about the fact that he was growing in his Judaism, that he was above all. He was striving. He even tells us that Gamaliel was his, uh, was his tutor. He was a Jew of all Jews. And he says this, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will profit you not I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is indebted to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision sums up, gathers up, is added into anything but only faith working through love. As we go back through these verses, we see very clearly that Paul has something in mind. He has an equation in mind and what he's trying to get to the Galatians. What he's trying to deliver to you this morning is that if what you do is rather than see Jesus as the entire payment for your sins and providing of all grace and all freedom, what you do is make what Jesus did on the cross a down payment. It's not the full payment, it's a down payment. And what you're going to do by following works of the law, by being a good person, by doing the right thing, by trying and earning is trying to actually take those things that you're doing and invest on top of the down payment. And what he's saying is, is that if you're going to do that, if you're going to take that, you're going to find that you're not accumulating or adding up anything, but indeed that you are actually more and more in debt. The more that you gather, the more that you try to add up your good works, the farther and farther Christ will flee from you because you can't add anything to the payment that he has already made. Paul is summing up this, 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 uh, this whole section where he's been talking about this by just making an appeal to your senses and saying, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't try to add anything to Christ If you do that, here's what Galatians tells you. If you try to earn your righteousness through works of the law, all that you do is deny Christ, you nullify his grace, and you remove the cross as the stumbling block. If instead what you do is is reach out and you just say, God and Father, I cannot do anything to add anything to my account. You have made every provision of grace forever and ever for me, and all I wanna do is accept that by faith. What he tells you is, is that you're free. That indebtedness that you had to the law, it is no more. You have riches, you have heirship, you have an inheritance, you have a kingdom, and it is yours, and guess what? You're not going to be in some jail cell in that kingdom. You're going to be enjoying it in total freedom for Christ that sets you free. Why? For the sake of living freely. If you invest in the ledger of the law, then every additional deposit ensures a perpetual indebtedness. But verse 4 says this, if you do that, you are severed uh, I mean, that is a really specific word in a passage that mentions circumcision twice. I would pr- I just tell you, I don't think that he's using that word on accident. He says that if you're trusting in works of the law, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. In God's economy, those who trust in works of the law will be cut off from the gracious, full accounts of Christ. But here's the question for us. How can you profit from Christ? For for those of us who'd go, it feels a little gritty, a little dirty. I don't know that I want to think about uh, Jesus in terms of money. How can I profit from Christ? Here's what I would tell you. Paul is beckoning you to take the profits of Christ that rather than seeking to invest where you could get dividends of self-righteousness, that instead you let Jesus do all of the investing so that you might get all of the profits of the whole kingdom and they might be yours. For the sake of freedom, Christ has set you free. This free gift of freedom is had through one thing and it is faith. How do you take Those prophets to be yours? How do you take hold of all of those prophets of Christ? Is it works? Is it works of the law? No, it is by faith. Verse 5, what does it say? For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Do you see the pattern here? Do you see the message of Galatians culminating in this instance where if you want freedom, if you want the prophets of Christ, all you have to do is have faith. By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Faith gets you righteousness. It gets you the righteousness of Christ. Verse six, only faith working through love. If you do the uh, reverse engineering on that sentence and you wanna go look at that word counts, if you wanna go look at that word addition, if you wanna look at that sum, all you need to know is if you ask the question, what counts for anything? Faith counts for everything. Your indebtedness, your indebted account there with Christ, if you simply offer faith, makes you free. What a great gospel this is for us, that Jesus on the cross paid our debt for our sin and then adds infinite righteousness to your account. Saying no to that, by the way, would just be insane. It would be as if somebody came in uh, this morning and, and tallied up all of your student loans tallied up all your mortgage, all of your credit card debt, anything that you owe anyone forever, we're to tally it all up. And then we're not just to pay it down, but we're to give you an endless supply and an account forever and for you to go, I'd rather earn it myself. Now listen, we live in a country where it's like, you could see somebody doing that, going, no, 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 I got it. I've got it. I want to earn mine. That's not the message of the gospel at all message of the gospel is inheritance. It is sonship. In, in a country where people uh, inheriting something is almost like a dirty thing, it's like, oh, that, that, that person's a trust fund baby. It's like, in the spiritual world, make me the trust fund baby. I want all of it. I want all. I wonder if this morning you are greedy for that freedom that only Christ can bring but you might be tempted to ask. I get it. I get the desire for freedom. I, de- I get the economy of freedom. I get the gospel and how I can have it. But what does true freedom look like? That's where I kind of want to return to that original quote and understanding that freedom is not primarily a freedom from obligation or constraint, but a freedom to something. So let us discover that together. What is the truest freedom? It says this again. I love repeating it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What is it that counts? It's faith. We've already covered that, but it's faith doing something. It's not faith just standing out there on its own. Paul adds one little tiny phrase, and it's an important phrase. Look at it with me at the end of this text that we're studying today. It says, faith working through love. We get this freedom we get this freedom through faith, but there is still work to do. And you go, ah, no, 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 that's, that's the exact opposite of what Paul's been saying this whole time, is that it's just only by grace through faith, and that's true. But on the other side of that grace, there is a freedom to actually do and to work and to be saved to something. What is it? This freedom that we get through faith still has work Freedom is not, therefore, a lack of constraint. If you treat the gospel like that, if you say, I am free in Christ and I'll go do what I will, and what you will is evil, if it's oppressive to other people, if it's unloving, if it's uncareful, if it's unfaithful, if it's ungenerous, uncharitable, unkind, unloving, unpatient, you're not living in grace. I would propose to you that if you look at Jesus Christ as this get-out-of-jail-free card and then to live in any manner that you choose, you have not understood, you have not valued, you have not treasured Christ. We do have things that we joyfully are obligated to work at. Freedom to do whatever we want cannot be our definition of freedom. Why? Why? Because we were made for a purpose. One of the reasons why I don't like Rousseau's quote is because it suggests at some level that there is some goodness inside of us that knows what to do with freedom perfectly and that does not align with my view of the world. I see lots of people using whatever version of free will that they have to hate other people. If that's that's freedom, I don't want any part of it. If if I look out at this world and I see a group of people that is using some amount of their freedom to go and get theirs, to earn more, to accumulate, to not share, to to literally just be hateful of other people, only considerate of themselves, only self-righteous in themselves, I don't like that kind of freedom. It's not even just that I don't like it. That's not what I think is on sale here in the gospel. It's not a freedom to do whatever you want. It's a freedom in Christ to joyfully do what we must. I think that we were made for a purpose and that we have some work to do. I want to prove it to you this morning using the same language. Different author, same language. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 25. Now, you're familiar with this. I mean, I I believe that just most people are familiar with this passage. It's a passage about the Good Samaritan. And we're not going to go into all of the intricacies about the Good Samaritan, but we are going to look at what a free life looks like according to this lawyer who's putting Jesus to the test, but see it in Christ and his agreement with it. Again, Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I I want you to hear in this question, what can I do to be free? What can I do to be free forever? What must I do? What work must I do to get into heaven forever? But here's the thing. If you look at that question, it's very me-centered. Jesus responds, and he said to them, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I want to just repeat that last line again. Do this, and you will live. What what was this? It was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you may say, hey, Chris, you just told me that you were going to show me in the same language that we've been using there in Galatians. Galatians has said this. It is faith working through love. And here, Jesus is telling us that our purpose, our work to do is to love God and to love people. That that if you really are following the creator of this universe and his son Jesus and living in the spirit, there is something inside of you that cannot help but to live a life of love towards God and towards your neighbor. Love God and love people. So, so I want to connect these two things again. What does it look like to live in freedom? Is it to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want? It's not. It's to live within the purpose that you were made for. And if you want to sum up the whole law, if you wanted to do the law, I mean, all of these people are trying to earn their righteousness. If you take your righteousness in Christ and then decide I want to live for him forever because of the freedom that he has ushered me into. What does a free life look like? What does it look like to live freely? What does freedom, what does Christian freedom look like? It looks like to live for your purpose. Love God and love people. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We could go on and make a list of many, many things that a free lived life looks like, but I just want to mention these two that we love God and love people as just the essence of what it looks like to live in freedom. So I want to ask you a question this morning Are you living in freedom? By that definition, are you living in freedom? I believe in here, despite sin, maybe tainting things, if you are in Christ, you want to live in freedom. And you know who else does? We've already covered it. Jesus has set you free for a life of freedom. How do you, how do you partner with him in this desire for you? How do you partner with him in the good life, the free life? You do what Jesus says. Not as a means of earning your righteousness, but out of a grateful, faithful loving heart that's been changed forever. This is why Christians should earnestly seek to live meaningful lives. I want to land on verse five and then make a few applications and then we'll be done. Verse five tells us that it is by faith, working through love, that we count up, that we store up, Anything in Christ in this life. The Galatians are going to begin giving some kind of application by Paul for this living life of freedom. But what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us today? How do we apply this Christian freedom here and now? Man, there are just I had so many things written down as possible applications. I had so many different things that I was like, man, I'd love to just spend like a whole hour talking about this element of like Christian living. I know that you know that I'm being serious about that. But I've reduced it down to three very, very short things. One of them comes out of verse one. For freedom Christ has set you free, stand firm therefore. How do you live a life of Christian freedom? You got to have a backbone. You got to be sturdy. You got to be steadfast in Christ. When winds of trials and travails, when persecution comes, when that person doesn't like you, when that person thinks that you are doing something wrong, when they think that you're believing in a foolish lie that was told millennia ago, whatever it is, stand firm there. We get this inheritance of knowing the truth and living in faith, and we get to actually say, stand firm therefore. Christians everywhere should take their religious liberty seriously. Now, here I did not mention the story about William Bradford at the very beginning. I didn't uh, mention at all like the father of our constitution. I didn't mention Madison so that we would associate that. Okay, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Christians should take up arms and, uh, you know, go fight for religious freedom, uh, you know, throughout every single country until we have it. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that you should fight for your religious freedom to do what you must. And, And what that can do is put you at odds with the HR department of your company. I've had conversations with people here in this church recently that have said, you know, I don't know what to do. The HR department's requiring, me, uh, requiring of me something that I just don't feel like in the convictions of Jesus Christ I can give them. They're requiring me to say words that I can't say in good conscience or uh, they're trying to put thoughts and things that are like stand contrary to the truth that I believe that I know in Jesus. And what I just want to tell you is stand firm. Does that mean go make fights, go pick fights, be adversarial, be unkind, be hateful? No, no, no. All it means is stand firm. We'll stand next to you. What what we want to do here at City Church is actually build a community where we can do precisely what Madison said. We can render to our creator such homage that he believes to be acceptable by God. That's what we want to do here. We want to create a little city of people that's just trying to love and honor God in true Christian freedom. Stand fast. Stand firm, plant your feet, know truth, have conviction. Christians, the God of this entire universe stands with you. He's not in a tomb somewhere, he's resurrected and he's standing alongside of you. Second, it says this, it doesn't just say stand firm, therefore, it says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Slavery. So here's all that I want to, this very short point, beware of teachers that do not begin and end with faith. If you hear something from me, if you hear something from a magazine, if you hear something from your favorite podcaster that is wanting to uh, tell you, whisper to you, or shout to you, go and be enslaved, be enslaved no more. Stand fast, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Whether it is legalism to follow the law or whether it is some earthly creation of a law, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. As Andrew has already mentioned, Jesus Christ's yoke is easy. His burden is light. There might be some light momentary afflictions that are involved with being a Christian, being involved as a free follower of Christ, but you live in a free world. It's not always easy to see. The people around you won't see it, but you do. It's reality. The last little point that I want to make here comes from the last uh, verse, and it says, "Working through love, faith working through love." 1 Corinthians thirteen says, "Faith." hope, and love abide. Faith, hope, and love are all words that we saw here in Galatians. We are all to be abiding in faith, hope, and love. But what does 1 Corinthians chapter 13 say is the greatest of these? Is it not love? Christian, to be free, you have to be I mean, in the love of Christ, you have to be permeated and saturated in the love of Christ. When somebody cuts you open, what should be coming out of you is just love, infinite love, the love of a Savior, the love of God that has been poured out on you and that you are able to give to others. Faith, and hope, faith hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Christ has set us free for the sake of living freely. And freedom came to us by the love of Christ. So I just want to call you, go and live in love. Let's pray for that. God and Father, your word is great. We stand before it and tremble until we hear the words that you desired for us to be free. And we are emboldened, we are encouraged to know that Christ is the one who gave us love, who bought for us love, who sacrificed his body for the sake of us to receive love, who rose from the grave to uh, allow us to have the hope of righteousness in love and gave us a faith, the Spirit who has given us faith to love, to love you and to love our neighbors. Father, I pray that you would help us to stand fast and firm in the gospel in our freedom. I pray that you would not allow for anybody that is a part of City Church to submit again to a yoke of slavery of any kind except for that that comes by way of bond slavery to Christ. He's a wonderful master. and Father, I pray that you would help us in faith live lives of love. Father, we pray this faithfully, knowing that you will provide it for City Church. And we just ask you that you would make it true, that you would make it right in our members. Lord, we love you We thank you for the great love of the gospel. And we pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.